Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Sooner with Kevin Kelly is the show that we have for you today. Kevin is the senior maverick at Wired, an award-winning magazine he co-founded. He's also the author of multiple best-selling books, including Excellent Advice for a Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Sooner, which is what we discuss today. In the episode, we discuss the power of listening, seeking first to understand, and how understanding leads to empathy, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kevin as much as I did. Kevin, thank you for joining me. We are going to be having a conversation on your book today. But before we do that, would you be comfortable providing a brief background for our listeners before we do? And I know that may be hard for you more than most guests I have on my show. But wherever you'd like to start to tell them a little bit about yourself, and then we'll dive right in. Thank you very much. So I'm Kevin Kelly. I'm technically the senior maverick at Wired Magazine. That's an honorary title because even though I was co-founder of the magazine 30 years ago, I no longer have any responsibilities, and I just write about one article a year for them as a freelancer. And I also write books about the culture of technology and diverging from all that. I recently did a Opus Magnus 30 pound masterpiece on photography with um, 50 years photographing in co-vanishing Asia. And uh, my most recent book is a book of advice, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. And it's 450 little proverbs, adages, little tweets about things that I learned the hard way and maybe you might want to know now. Excellent advice for living. And Kevin, when you were 68, you decided to write some words of wisdom for your kids. Yeah. And every year on your birthday, you would share that. And ultimately, that led to this book. What prompted the idea at 68, I'm going to start writing words of advice for my kids? I had been jotting down for a long time. First of all, I've been jotting down proverbs that other people said because I liked the format. Very telegraphic, almost a little kind of like a zip file that you can unpack yourself. And I realized that my kids were old enough as young adults that there were many things were not very preachy that we had never, bits of advice we had never told them. And I decided to take the things I was writing down and to try to put them into something that would be useful to them. And I gave away on my birthday, kind of in the, the Irish Hobbit tradition of giving presents on your birthday. And so they went viral. I posted them and they went viral. and. I was encouraged to keep doing it, and they also continue to be viral. So after doing three and having a fourth set, I decided we should put it together into a book that would make it a little easier for people to find them and to pass them on. And for most of these, Kevin, little bite-sized pieces of advice, at some point you said tweetable. And I imagine that to make it onto the list – there's something more behind each one of them, maybe a life lesson or something you've experienced in your life that says, let me put this one down for my kids. Does that resonate? I had several different criteria that I was trying to, to apply to these. One was I was trying to take up a lot of very complex and deep knowledge and wisdom and try to, that might ordinarily be a, a long story in a book or may even be an entire book, and I would try to compress it into something that was very, very short and brief and succinct, the way I like to write. And so that was one thing, was whether I could compress something. And I really wanted it to be practical. So one of the questions is, is this practical? Rather than, is not is just, is it true, but is it practical? Will it really help someone? Can they act on it in some way? So it has to be more than just true. It had to be actionable. 
And the second one was, I, to your point, is I really kept asking myself, do I really, really believe this? Is this really true in my own experience? Is this mine? Am I just repeating something that sounds good? Or is it something that I truly believe in? And so each one had to withstand that saying, no, I have experience in this. I know this. This is what I really want to say. And so those two, and then the third one, was I able to make it short? Because there are lots of ones that just, I never was able to kind of say it in a way it was complicated. There was too nuanced or required too many words. And it just never, it never made the cut in terms of being able to actually compress it. So those three things were the, were the, the criteria that I was using to have one included. Is it practical? Do I believe it? Is it short? And I love that because what I thought might be fun, I selected a few as I went through the book and thought it might be fun to chew on them together and, and expand on them sure. and say, well, well, why did these ones make the list and how did they jump out for you? And, and the first one that I enjoyed, and then I saw a tweet on it the very next day in a different format. And I, I quote, uh, I commented with this one liner and uh, put your name under it was enthusiasm or being enthusiastic is worth 25 IQ points. And it makes sense because it seems that you get very passionate about what you do in life, whatever that is in the moment that you're doing it. What does that look like for you? I think this proverb about enthusiasm being equivalent to 25 IQ points came from both sides. For me, in my own experience of being enthusiastic, and then also in me in terms of hiring and trying to work with people who um, I have found over time that it really wasn't necessarily the smartest person that I wanted to hire. It was the person who was very enthusiastic, who may not have been as smart, but I think intelligence is often overrated. And this is particularly true what we're finding out in the world of AI is that you need so much more than just plain smarts to get things done in the world. You need empathy, you need grit, you need persistence. There's, there's just so much more that goes into accomplishing things. And I, my own experience is that people who were maybe not as smart, but were much more enthusiastic, and that enthusiasm was, was about belief in the, in the mission, kind of really being committed, a sense of commitment. There was a sense of positivity, which is hugely important. And other aspects that were kind of wrapped up in our world enthusiastic. And that's coming back to my side. That's often what I would bring. And, and I am not by any measure the smartest person in the rooms that I'm in, in, but I could be one of the most enthusiastic about whatever it is that we're working on. And that's very valuable for the reasons of but just describing getting something done, being able to persevere, being able to continue when things aren't working, being able to get other people involved and work well with others. And so I've seen this borne out on both sides, both as a person who's enthusiastic and as a person who hires people. And you mentioned that is one of the key things for you in hiring. Are there any other things that when you look at who am I going to hire to join the team or join the project, yeah. are there any other keys that you look for, Kevin? So there's a couple others. One is we had the saying at Wired when we were hiring at the very beginning of the web, when inventing the web, was we hire for attitude, train for skill. So we assume that the skill, nobody knew how to develop, code a web page. There was no web. There was, it was just being invented. But we needed web developers, so who do you hire? Hire people who can learn fast. And so that ability to learn, fast learners, was for me a key quality is, is probably what you're going to be doing in two years from now, nobody knows how to do. So you're going to have to figure it out. And are you a person good at figuring things out? The second one is not usual for small groups, but becomes important if you, as you get larger. And this I learned from Jeff Bezos. And that was because I asked 
I'm not sure if I asked him or someone else asked him about his hiring strategies and at Amazon in the early days. And he said, yeah, he says, the thing I was focused on is, is this person going to be able to hire other people as good or better than themselves? So he was hiring people on the basis of their hiring ability, whether they were good judges of character, whether they themselves were going to be able to hire new leaders. So that was very far thinking. He's already kind of like taking the long-term view, understanding that the people he's going to hire are going to hire other people. So you, they have to be really good at it. And that useful when you get to a certain size. The next one that I'll jump to with you, we, we talked about enthusiasm IQ, and you also talked about hiring people that are able to figure things out. What that brings up for me is the idea of curiosity. And you wrote that being curious about another person's view is the most powerful way to change their view. That raised for me the idea from Stephen Covey of seeking first to understand what did that look like for you in your life? Yeah, it's said this in a different way that actually I have a whole bunch of um, quotes and bits of advice that are not in the book. Either I thought of them too late or I rewrote them later. But one of them is, is that most arguments are not about the thing that's being argued about <laughs> and therefore you can't win them <laughs> with an argument you can't one of the bits of advice that's in the book is that you can't reason someone out of a position they haven't reasoned themselves into and most of the things that people believe are not because of a reason so i found that that rather than arguing with people or trying to convince them through logic that the mere act of trying to understand them does two things one is it enables me to have more empathy for them. And even if I don't agree with them, I can at least respect them. And secondly, the very act of having a dialogue with someone else can often illuminate in a person the areas where they need to, to change their mind. It's not in the act of competition and combating. It's like there's another bit of advice in the book about troubleshooting. So one of the principles of troubleshooting, whether it's you're trying to figure out something's broken, it's a broken lawnmower, it's a broken piece of code, it's a, you know your TV doesn't work anymore and you're trying to fix it. And a major, what I have found, and other people as well, a major troubleshooting solution is to articulate and go through and describe the problem to another person step by step. What exactly is a problem? And it's amazing how often in that process of describing the problem to another that you see the solution. The solution comes out of that process of trying to describe it. Because sometimes we kind of get frustrated and we know there's a problem and we just want the answer. But taking the long route around of describing it step by step will often illuminate the problem to yourself. And that's true in discussing, say, something controversial or whatever for another person, of just going through with them, of asking them to step through it and to explain and say, I don't understand that. Can you tell me more about that? That process can often illuminate to other people where the problems are in their own thinking. So by getting them to walk through the problem right. from start to finish, they're almost without realizing it, diagnosing right. the problem. And they may actually stop at some point and say, wait a second. I don't even need this. Like I, They may not admit to it, but it may begin the wheels turning a little bit in a certain direction saying, yeah, I can, I see a gap there. I can see why that might be, why that may not make sense. Or maybe I need to reconsider that. Or that's an area I should find out more about. And something else you mentioned earlier in there that I want to be a bit of a dog on a bone with, because I see it as a big challenge with the polarization that we're seeing in the world with everything seeming having to have a position on one side or the other, even though there really is, I agree with you, there is no them. Yet we seem to be dividing everybody between two camps, which becomes a problem when you raise the point that we can't reason someone mm -hmm. out of a position they didn't reason themselves into. Mm -hmm. In so many positions that seem to be being taken are simply taken because they're the default position 
of, well, I'm on this side and I always have to be on this side, not recognizing, well, you don't always have to choose one way. You can choose left. You can choose right. You can, it doesn't, every single thing we debate doesn't have to be on either side of that spectrum. Does that resonate with you? And, and how do you see us finding a way? Because I, like you, I'm an eternal optimist for the future. And this seems like something we need to do some work to combat a little. Yeah, I think in the book, again, I don't remember what's in it, but there's a, a piece of advice that you don't actually have to like everybody. We've no obligation to like everybody, but we have an obligation to respect them. And part of what you want to do with people who have views that you don't agree with is to try to understand what it is. And that understanding may at least diminish your annoyance. It may not change your mind or change their mind, but it can reduce the annoyance that you may have um, if you contain respect for that person. So there's this weird thing of respecting in some ways people with a very different view that, and that, doesn't mean we necessarily have to either condone their behavior. I mean, if having a view is one thing, acting like a jerk is a different thing. And so respecting that person to the degree that they are earning that respect, again, help us get along with people that we disagree with. I don't see ever some weird utopia where everybody agrees and nobody's in violent disagreement. I don't see that ever being possible or maybe even desirable. So if we just assume there's, there's going to be people who are really coming at something in a completely different way than us, so how can you believe that? The way to do is you can have these discussions and try to change each other's mind, which is fun and good and maybe even useful to the world. But if you can't, then you can still understand them why the understanding meaning not, not accept, but the real key thing in having debates, we've had some debates, and what, what, one of the key ways to have a debate is that the other side has to be able to recapitulate the opponent's argument to the satisfaction of that opponent, right? If we're having, if we're having a disagreement about, uh, you know, I don't know, guns, I need to be able to articulate your position to the satisfaction that you say, yes, that's, that's what I'm saying. And that requires a degree of listening and understanding that is very, very powerful and can help us accomplish things, even though we're in disagreement. There's some element of a requirement to separate the person right. from the idea or the behavior. And the right. first time I, I saw what you're saying was I, when they had the televised Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris debate in that Jordan Peterson said in, in any argument I ever have the, the, or debate, I want to be able to, before I respond to anything, say back to the other person and have them agree that I've understood right. their position. And I find that fascinating, which takes me to the next one, which is somewhat uh, avoiding the argument altogether, because you brought up the idea of bite-sized pieces of advice that were tweetable. And I spend a fair amount of time on Twitter. And a lot of people talk about it as a cesspool of negativity. Yet mm -hmm. I find it one of the most fascinating pe places for meeting good people, mm -hmm. learning from others, growing. For mm -hmm. me, it's, it's the greatest spot I've ever been. And part of that is we get to curate our own feed. Sure. So if I, if I curate my feed to, and not to say that I'm curating for echo chambers, but I'm curating to not be in a sea of, of negativity, if you will, Kevin, and, and this tied to the idea that you said, you don't have to attend every <laughs> argument you're invited to. Yeah. When, how does that jump out for you? Well, very simply, I mean, take your example of Twitter. So I have, you know, Twitter, you're invited to, to join the outrage. And I just deliberately avoid, I, I deliberately choose not to be outraged. Today, I'm not going to be outraged. And so I will not follow the people who are outraged or not listen, you know, not like the, the outraged posting. And so I 
choose today not to be outraged and, and that's in kind of like not choosing to attend an argument. And the th yeah, Twitter is a outrage amplifier and people think that it's the place that outrage works, but it doesn't really. Um, and so um, you can curate your, it's another word, you know, you, you can curate your life so you don't attend the arguments that, you, that you're, uh, don't need to go to. And so um, your life will be better for that. Um, there are places for outrage, but it's a, like a lot of things. You don't need very much of it before it becomes an overdose, before it becomes toxic. So I, 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 I have this image as like a rare earth mineral or element, which your body, which the body whole needs. Outrage is appropriate at times, but any large dose of it is toxic. Your body needs cadmium in very tiny doses. If it has too much cadmium, it's completely toxic. And it's the same with outrage. One of the things I love that you said there was you choose not to be outraged, right. which is something that seems to sometimes be missing in people. And when, when you think of words of advice, right, is the Viktor Frankl is that gap between stimulus and response and mm -hmm. choosing how you're going right. to react right. in your life. How have you been able to expand that window so mm. that you're better able to make those choices, not to be outraged or not to enter into the argument? It is true, but I am a very deliberate person. I have always been. And, um, you know, I have a fairly high degree of self-discipline and I would say that I have a natural amount of that, maybe higher than average, but I also <laughs> have chosen to become more deliberate if that makes any sense at all. Absolutely. I deliberately have become more deliberate. Okay. And so it is a habit and a skill. It's a habit. And I think talent is unevenly distributed in the world at our birth. But everything, every virtue and every talent can be improved. So no matter where we start, we can always get a little better. And I think if you're moving in that direction, that's great for you and maybe all that can be asked. And so other people may find it harder to be deliberate, but it is something you can get better at and you can take your whatever little bit of deliberateness you have and choose to be more deliberate. And there you go. Yeah. And over, I echo that over the last 13 years, probably the things I've worked on the most for my talents would be consistency being intentional and deliberate yeah. and more, most of all is just increasing that gap between my stimulus and my responses. And sure. It, as Victor says, that's where the magic happens. If you work on these things within three years, you're completely different than when you started working on sure. them deliberately. So it resonates what you're saying there. The next one I'd love to riff on with you is whenever you can't decide which path to take, mm. pick the one that produces change. Yeah. I'm very pro change. You have to be careful about, you know, changing for the sake of change. But in this case, where you're stuck, I think the bias towards change will yield, on average, better results than sticking in the, the same place. I think, in, in general, most people, when they're older, near death, their regrets are about things that they didn't do rather than things that they did. And so that lost opportunity, the change, we're more likely to, to promote regret if you don't choose it than continuing with what we're already doing. So there's a bias. It doesn't mean always necessarily that that's the right thing for you, but on average, I would say the bias is towards change. And as someone who's studied change and technology and always with an eye to the future. How do you see the pace of changing? Sure. Good question. Going? Because it feels to me, especially with AI, that yeah. we're accelerating at an even faster pace. It is. And that's actually one of the reasons why we have to keep changing is because the environment around us is changing. And it is true that that can be exhausting, that that rate of change can be exhausting, keeping up. And there are people who find it exhausting and 
don't want to change. And I think what I found is that you can kind of balance some of that change that's necessary with a reliance on things that don't change. And so in, in my own experience, the people that, to me, that seem the best adjusted to this really fast-moving world often have a core that is very stable. It's like, I think it was, um, was it Jim Collins who wrote the book, From Good to Great? So he did the study of companies. And he was comparing not the good companies to the bad companies. He was comparing the great companies to the good companies, which was very clever and very insightful. And what he said, the difference between the great ones and the good ones was the great ones had a, a mission, a core that never changed. They may have changed the entire businesses that they were doing, but they had some core that never changed. And it was that core that never changed and being adaptable and everything else that enabled them to be long lived, you know, to, to go and, and to reach greatness. And so that I think the same thing is kind of true about people. In a certain sense, you want to have this core of wisdom, say, of a being where you're very, very consistent and reliable and unchanging. And that permits you to be very adaptable and flexible and a friend of change in so many other things. And so for me, that's what I have seen in myself and in other people is the way that you live in this fast changing world and not become exhausted is that you have a core that is unchanging and reliable and consistent and dependable. And it's a center where you can kind of rest. And by the way, Rest is a large part of that. You know, having a Sabbath, having sabbaticals, taking time off, taking a break, those are all, to me, instrumental in the ability to have, to deal with the fast-paced staying change that never ceases. And when you say sabbatical, how often, how often would you recommend or would you look at in your life to say, I'm going to take a sabbatical? And what does a sabbatical yeah. look like for you in duration and location maybe? So, you know, traditionally sabbatical is every seven years, but what the best way to think of sabbaticals is a kind of just a complete shift in what you're doing but the important thing is that you you don't want to have the expectations of being hugely productive in it so if, if you're just shifting from one ambitious project to another ambitious project that's not a sabbatical you actually have to have it has to entail some level of rest, recuperation, refreshing, and do nothingness in it. There has to be a sense of where you are. It doesn't look like success, where it um, is not being measured by productivity. That's the part of the sabbatical part where you're actually taking a break from things. And it doesn't, it can be a month, it can be two months. But the thing is that it's not like you are reduced and pushed there because you've burnt yourself out. It's something that you, again, choose to and do intentionally before you're burnt out, where you say, I'm going to take a sabbatical. I'm going to take time off. I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to play instead of work and play in the sense of non-competitive, no-goal explorations or rest or relaxation or fun or all those things. And so that's what it entails. And it can be whenever you think you might need it or it might be useful. And if you're producing and creating on a regular basis, then you want to have your sabbaticals on a regular basis too. Do you differentiate a sabbatical to some extent from a long vacation? Like if you go away for a four week vacation, are you calling that a vacation or it's yeah. not quite a sabbatical, right? No, it could be. It's a break. It's, you know, staycations, vacations, sabbaticals. Um, unplugged. Unplugged retreats. They all have different intensities and lengths, but it's the idea of, of that shift, of that different mode where you are not trying to be productive. Thought scares me a little, and I well, want to you know, do one. I say elsewhere that, you know, 
the best work ethic requires a good rest ethic. Some people are literally the idea of taking even a half a day off every week, no matter what, scares some people. They say it's impossible. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy what you're hearing so far and want me to be able to get your favorite guests on this show, please do me a quick favor. Subscribe to the show and leave me a rating. The 30 seconds of your time will mean a ton to me. Not do anything working zero every day. I mean, every week, how can you get things done? Or I wouldn't get as many things done. And they find it scary. But the people who do it, realize how incredibly powerful it is in so many dimensions. You know, we're talking about Sabbath here every week, one day or even half a day, every week, no matter what, that is incredibly powerful. And you're saying, well, you're missing, you know, one-tenth. You've reduced your productivity by one-tenth. No. <laughs> You've increased your productivity by 10 times. Because of the effect of the recharge, it's a exactly. multiplying the, the effect recharge, to the rest the, of the week. Looking at the world differently, and this goes back to the Drucker you know, thing, which is like, it doesn't matter how hard you're working if you're working on the wrong thing. And one of the things that sabbaticals and Sabbaths do is to, to keep giving you a chance to say, am I working on the right thing? When you talk about the Sabbath, the other thing it really helps us do is the ability to reconnect with our loved ones, our friends who, who we're not yeah. with. Right, exactly, which is the more important work that we're doing. Absolutely, and you, you talk about one that reminds me of that concept in how to win friends and influence people. When we want to improve our ability to connect with others, the one thing you say is to be interesting, be interested. Right. How has that served you in life? And how does it serve someone who wants to, to get ahead? Yeah, I just heard a talk from David Brooks. It was really good. And he was saying, um, you know, he's a journalist. And um, he was talking about the, the, the moral dimension of having conversations with people and asking questions. And he says a lot of reporters or other people, when they're sitting out, are often reluctant to ask other people, maybe they're sitting at a dinner table, maybe they're sitting on a park bench, maybe they're even a random stranger on, on a bus. People are often very reluctant to ask personal questions because they expect people might say that's none of your business. But he's, he says it's quite the opposite in that in, that in you know, whatever it is, 40 years of, of interviewing and asking people very, very personal questions. He says, never once has anybody said, that's none of your business. Most people just would love to talk about their lives themselves, tell you, and are just delighted that you're asking. And so that, yeah, that act of being interested in someone else just unleashes so much love, goodwill, and by the way, cooperation, well, so many other things that it's an incredibly powerful tool to be interested in someone else, genuinely interested and to be actively listening to what they're saying. And for most people, you can't be too personal. And when you want to start that dialogue, let's say you're, you're at a dinner table and you're seated beside someone you right. haven't met before. And, and you know the way to have a really good conversation with them over that dinner is to get really interested in something that right. they find interesting or is their passion. Right. Do you have any go-to questions, Kevin, yeah. that, that you use that get right in there I do. to the heart of it? I do. And I have a little game, which I think I mentioned in the book. My little game is that I know this other person, this other random person that I've never met, no matter who they are, I know that they know something about something far beyond what I know, that there is something that they are expert on, maybe even the world expert. And it's not going to be obvious what it is. And so there's a game of like finding out what that is. And sometimes my first question, my very first question after hello, 
might be things like, um, what do you know that most people don't know? What do you know about that most people don't know? Or what are you excited by these days? Or what excites you? Or um, what do you do for fun? And very quickly, we can start to get to some interesting places. And I'm interested. And they're going to be interesting. And I'm going to be interesting to them, even though I didn't say anything. And Kevin, have I heard you potentially on another podcast also say something along the lines of, what is something that you're very interested in or passionate about that the other people here today don't know you're passionate about? Is that one I that resonates with you? I'm thinking of my definition of a heresy. And the definition of a heresy is, what's something that you believe that the people that you most admire don't believe? People that you respect find crazy or weird or whatever. What's a heresy? That's a We've had many conversations. That's a little deeper. That that requires a lot more trust. That's not where I would begin a conversation. <laughs> but when you get to know people we and you want to have a to, fun convo, that there. can be good. Yeah. And um, people have to feel pretty safe to do that. But it is a great way to have a conversation. And it might have been that, actually, because it was just last week that I was listening to the uh, RC episode right. that, yeah. that Tim put out with the five of you. So when we go back to sabbatical Savis and, and taking time off and pursuing what you're passionate about, I would jump to the conclusion that that means you have to say no to a lot of things so you can say yes to the things you want to do. And you talked about the beauty of coming to a realization of in your life that no is an acceptable answer even without a reason. That's right. How much do we need to reinforce that in people? A lot, a lot. You need to learn how to say no politely, but firmly. And you don't owe anyone an excuse or reason. And you, I think, do yourself a disfavor when you try and give yourself an excuse. Not required. And I know... For on my end, when I receive other people who are giving me no without reason, I find it perfectly acceptable, and I don't require a reason from other people. I had a mentor, I will call him now, who had a remarkable ability to say no, and I long, I long tried to figure out what it was, and here's how he was doing it. He was saying no in a way that made it seem as if it was a favor that he was telling you no. Okay? So it was like, it's in your interest for him to say no. I was like, what? How does, you know, that's... So I've tried to to do that as, as well as, again, but that's not necessary. You don't even need to do that. You can just politely say, you know, I can't do it. I regret. I'm unable, you know, whatever. And so... Politely, but firmly, no reason needed. I love that. The next one I, I want to make sure I get in because it was a pretty powerful one was this idea, and I'm seeing it as I get older, is that I, I like to think of life sometimes as seasons, and it seems everybody gets married at the same time, that everybody has babies at the same time. and You go through those seasons of your life, and I'm entering what feels like a bit of a season of death where mm. older aunts and uncles and potentially parents, you're starting to see for the first time people passing away and it's becoming yeah. more and more. And you talked about this idea of not reserving our kindest praise yeah, for right. a person until their eulogy. Yeah. And, and not only telling them while they're alive, but I, I, I thought it was beautiful that you said, write them a letter. Yeah. And, and I wanted to see why that writing of the letter right, right. resonated so much more than just talking. There was one wise person who not who went even a step further. And he would have, um, he was doing where he wrote them a letter and then went to see them and, re and read the letter to them in person. That's like, I'm not really quite ready for that because that's very intense, but very, you know, very emotional and of course, very meaningful if you were to do that. So I'm just letting you know that there's another level 
for those who are ambitious is tell a person while they're alive, write them a letter, go visit them, read them the letter, or tell them what you're going to say. So it's very, very powerful. It's very catharsis for both sides. And, you know, it's, what's the word I want? I've been to a number of funerals where it's like, why didn't we do this when they were alive? So that they could have heard everything that people were going to say. And there is a tradition called, I think it's called Fentrith, Fentrith, where there was uh, a couple of people two different times when there were people who were getting older and their children arranged this, where they had people write things and made a little book. So all their friends, they went around and said, say something you'd want to say to this person while they're alive and we'll make a book out of it and give them the book. And that was very, very, very beautiful. And there was another one where they did a, a they, they had a gathering together, like a funeral or a wake before, while the person was still living. And they had friends come and toast to that person. And that is also very, very powerful. But you don't need to wait until the end. You can, it's actually more powerful to do it now. And this is something that I'm trying to do more myself just because I have older friends. And so uh, it would be great if we made a kind of a cultural habit out of it. And the other side of that you talked about as well, which, which is similar to the ideas from Bill Perkins in his recent book, Die With Zero, is this yeah. idea that flipping the table now with my children, hey, why am I waiting until I die to give them my right. inheritance? Right. I don't get right. to see them enjoy it. Right. They're probably too old by then. Right. When do they need the money? When right. is the best time? And how do I get the joy out of seeing them get that? So it, it, in other words, giving them the, the, some of their inheritance, if you can right. afford right. it earlier in their right. lives, right. what does that look like as an important one for you? Right. And, and by the way, something we're discovering ourselves is that the, the way this is kind of resolving in our own lives is helping the kids get a house. A hundred percent. That's sort of like what it comes down to is like, it's, I'm in the Bay Area. It's like, it's literally impossible for a young person to buy into the scheme. And so helping them with the house is sort of something that's when they need it, we get to share their joy in it. It's very, really useful to them. So that's how it's kind of working out in our own lives. But either way, there's another book called um, Die Broke, which was preceded but it was the same idea of you want to do two things. One is that you're, you're kind of trying to direct your own, whatever um, abundance that you might have to the next generation in, in a much more reasonable way. In part, because having a generation inherit wealth is not a good thing for them either. But if you're alive and trying to direct it, you can manage it better and help them acquire it, so to speak. And at the same time, it's good for you in terms of being able to enjoy and direct that gift. And so it's about how to give gifts better. It's beautiful and I, I resonate with what you're saying about housing. I live in Vancouver, which is in Canada, our version of the Bay for house yeah. prices. And by day, I'm a CFO for a real estate developer. so. We often refer to it for our potential clients. It's often, or homeowners or home purchasers, it's the bank of mom and dad. And it yeah. seems to be the only way to get into the, into the market, Kevin. Yeah. The last one I'll throw at the, uh, out at you from the book and, and then hopefully uh, we'll take you through a couple rapid fire questions. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll do a combo of one, I'm trying to cheat a little here and okay. put two together, but they're both short. So the idea that, the greatest teacher is doing let's start with that and i'll see if i can pull up the second one or if it didn't save and five years from now so the greatest teacher is doing mm -hmm. and five years from now you will wish you had started today yeah 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 this combined with a lot of other bits of advice about doing things on a regular basis and accomplishing big things by incrementally approaching them through many iterations and 
you want to be able to have another bit of advice that you can only get to a really great idea by having generating a multitude of really bad ideas. And this is the idea of prototyping your life rather than having grand plans of getting there in kind of an experimental, incremental way. So this, so, so they're all combined about doing things is you don't want to make it a big deal. You want to make it a, like a continuous number of small deals. You want to be doing things on a regular basis, knowing that most of the things you do aren't going to work. If you're doing them on a regular basis, then you, you'll come to understand that there's more from where that comes from. If you kind of reserve the thing where I'm going to try and write and it's a big thing and I'm writing the great American novel and I'm just get started and it doesn't work and then therefore I'm not a writer, I can't go. That's not prototyping. You want to make, you want to prototype, you want to try a little thing. You want to, you want to do write 500 words a day or 100 words a day, just on a regular basis, no matter what. And it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. It's the habit of writing. It's the habit of making it. It's the thing that you're doing. You're going to do a podcast. You're going to do it every week for years, whether it's a good one or not. You're doing it. And that is how you make a great one over time. And so that process of doing them, You'll make mistakes. The things will fail. But that is by far the best teacher. Reading about it doesn't work. Hearing about it doesn't work. But actually doing something and having it not work is how you're going to learn to make it work. And so, uh, and this is particularly true if you're trying to do something that no one's done before, which I hope you do try because nobody knows how it works. And so you're hugely going to be failing all the time for a while. And it, but but the whole point is that you want to do this in kind of an incrementally small way where you are managing your failures by keeping them small, fast, often, forward. Fail fast, fail often, fail forward, fail better. And and the idea that, that you're going to expect things, where you're going to make something to throw away. You're going to make the first version to throw it away. You're going to make a rough draft, and you're going to – the whole book, and you're going to throw it away and write another draft. You're going to make the first – prototype chair out of cardboard and then you're going to make one out of plywood and then you're going to make one out of fine wood. You're going to make a movie by making the script and then the storyboards and then the animatronics and then the scratch version and then you're going to make the final thing. So this is this process of making and remaking is the only way you're going to get there and doing it is the way that you're going to learn. And with these little steps, because they're a little step, you just take a little step over and over again you can start today, right? And we overestimate what we can accomplish in six months, but we underestimate what we can accomplish in 10 years. So you just, you do this every day for 10 years and, uh, you know, like all the YouTube stars, Brownie, he made a hundred videos. And on his hundred videos, he had, at, at the hundredth video, he had 90 subscribers nine zero a hundred and now of course he has you know whatever it is 90 million but he made a hundred of them with only 90 subscribers he was it, it was the fact that he was doing it and that, that hundred allowed him to learn how to do it and so i'm a really believer in quantity and repetition or, or repeating the habit in creation, I think is really, really important. And it's important for two reasons. It's important if you want to get better, but it's also important just for the joy of it. I, I do a piece of art every day. I'm not trying to become a professional artist. I'm not trying to make a portfolio. I'm just doing it because I enjoy doing it. I share it because why not? It's so easy. But I'm doing it for the pleasure. And it's that the reward for work, for good hard work, is you get to work more. The reward for doing it once is that it'll help you get to do it again. So it's not just all about kind of a way to maximize profit and become rich and famous. That will work too, and that's the way to go there. But it also works for just the pleasure for the habit of it. It partially works because not a lot of people are willing to show up every day, yeah. put in the reps, 
and think in decades over days. Right. And we won't dive into it, but it ties to, you talk about this idea of, you know, there is no getting rich quick. There is no. Yeah, there's getting rich slow. Yeah. And the thing, and it was, I think Walt Disney who first said it is, we don't make movies to make money. We make money so we can make movies. All right. And so we wanted to be doing things, not so you reduce the amount of time that you do it, but so that you expand about it. So you do it as, as long as you want to be working on things where you want to work on them as long as possible, spending many hours as you can. And so it's like a lot of this stuff is, is making habits. And there's a great book on making habits, Atomic Habits by James Clear. And it's very clear about the steps, but you can make learning and doing and gratitude and other things like intentionality are habits that you can get better at. Kevin, do you have a couple minutes for four rapid fire questions? Sure. We usually throw out quests. Yep. Okay. What's a book that's had a material impact on changing your life? Material impact. Um, well, I just mentioned Atomic Habits by James Clear, who's top of mind. That was a very influential book in terms of refining the habit of habits. By far, the most influential book in my life has been The Whole Earth Catalog, which I encountered when I was in high school. I later was so enamored of it that I was my first real job was working there. And then originally I took, took over it and it was called access to tools. And it was people sharing the tools to help them live a good life. And I've sort of continued that with my own cool tools website and recommendo. They're all basically derivative of the whole earth catalog and it's mandate to share uh, tools and practical stuff, tips and whatnot. So that has shaped, shaped me in tremendous ways and made me a better person and is still something that I'm arranging my life according to, uh, which is kind of, um, yeah, sharing how to do things, sharing how to become a better person, sharing how to, sharing tools. So another, let me think of a third one. Believe it or not, there was a book that I had all my kids read, which was um, What Color Is Your Parachute? What Color Is Your Parachute is a really good book when you're looking for a job for the first time, especially. And there's a better book by Dan Pink called Johnny Bunko, I think. I don't remember. It's a graphic novel, which kind of was what to do when you get your first job, not how to find your job. But once you have your first job, what do you want to keep in mind? And both of those, the core, the core insight in both of those is that finding a job is not about sending resumes. It's about making personal connections and trying to think like the people that would hire you. And I kind of reduced some of that advice into the book to this idea that if you approach someone looking for a job with the idea that you need the job and that's why you want the job is because you need it, you're just another problem for that bought person. You're bringing your problem to them. But what you really want to do is you want to be a person that solves problems for the potential boss. You want to be able to go say, I know you have a bunch of problems and I'm going to solve your problems. So that requires a degree of empathy because you have to put yourself in the shoes of that person. It's like, well, what are they looking for? What's, what are the problems that they're trying to solve? I want to be the solution to that rather than I'm going to bring your, my problem to you, which is I need a job. And so that kind of empathy is what I got from What Color Is Your Parachute, switching it around and not just sending out endless resumes, but saying, find a person, talk an actual individual in somewhere that you want to work and have lunch with them, find out what it's like to work at their place, find out what their problems are, what they're looking for and talking to that person. And that's how you sort of find a job you, because you're kind of matching your somewhere where you're matching your abilities to solve a problem with someone who needs those abilities. And so that was a very practical book that articulated for me the process of, of um, looking for a job that I could use with my children. I love it. 
And what's on your shelf right now? What's on my shelf right now? Oh my gosh. I have so many bookshelves. I have two stories, oh my two stories of books everywhere. Oh, which one are you digging yeah, into? What am I reading right now? I was rereading, actually. I was just thinking, what's, what was the last thing on my Kindle that I just, because uh, I was just looking at, uh, I was rereading some Annie Dillard, beautiful lyrical writer that made me want to be a writer, her first book. And what did I have over by my bedstand? I think it was a book about happy families. Oh, nice. Bruce Feeler. And the last one for you, what is one mindset, habit, or behavior that you've changed that has had an oversized positive impact on your life? Particularly a lot of them in my book, and it's called Excellent Advice, Wisdom I Had Wished to Known Earlier. And, and the practical one of those was, I mentioned I was working for the Horworth Catalog, and that was one of my first jobs, and it was a dream job. But I was a do-it-yourselfer. And I had been all my life, and I made a house from scratch, cutting down the trees and making lumber out of it. It was totally insane. And I have built stuff here, parts of it, you know, whatever. I'm a huge do-it-yourself believer and kind of like we did some homeschooling, make your own home, you make your own school. Uh, the power of the individual to do things is really, really profound, and we have so many tools these days. That allow an individual to do things yourself. So now with YouTube and Amazon, I can do repairs of all kinds of things that I could not possibly repair before. But that was kind of a constraint. That was kind of like I realized, and I wish I had known earlier, that overcoming that by understanding that I was just limited in what I could do and that you can hire great people who can do things often better than you can or that you can't do. And that, that is really the way to leverage your power in the universe, your impact. And so the way I say it now is the most precious thing that we have, that I have, that you have, is something that even the wealth of a billionaire cannot buy more of, which is our time, the 24 hours a day. The billionaire, everything is free, except they cannot buy more time. So that is, the, so my time is the most precious thing in the world, and your time is the most precious thing in the world. And if I can convince you to give me some of your time to work on my project, that is the best bargain in the world, no matter how much I pay you. So... I now understand that hiring out, getting other people to work on the things that I want done is like, is this the best leverage in the whole world? And so I go to Upwork all the time. Whenever we have something, we always say, "Do we have we done this enough that we can specify it to outsource it? And I'm very happy to hire professionals to do things that I could do, but I want to use my time for something else. And so this idea of hiring out is something I wish I had known when I was younger. Absolutely. And, and my wife has joined the team behind the scenes, and I'm working really hard to educate her on that with Fiverr, yeah. Upwork, right. virtual assistants right, that right. are now located around the world. It's right, right. like the opportunities are endless. Stop doing, honey. Start right. hiring people. And right. and I'm saying that because she listens to this as she edits it. But okay. she should probably outsource no, no, that editing. Uh, all, all our podcasts. <laughs> we contact Claudia, my assistant, and she'll tell you who we use to yeah. edit our, our podcasts. It's, it's like there's no reason to. Someone else is going to be very, very happy to have that work. And I am very happy to give it to them. Perfect. And I want to respect your time. We've gone over uh, our hour. Yeah. Kevin, is there anything we didn't cover that you want to make sure you leave with the listener? There is so much more that we didn't cover, but I'm really happy with what we have. So thank you for your time and attention. I'm grateful for the thought that you've given this book. And I hope other people find it useful. I know I've heard from several different parents who say, look, my kids don't listen to any of my advice, but they'll listen to someone else. So I give them my book. And so, yeah, exactly. Uh, thank you again for your support. Thank you. 
If you like the podcast, you'll love our new newsletter, The Growth Guide. Every Thursday, straight to your inbox with the goal to help you be better, achieve more, and become financially free. Check it out at our website, thegrowth.guide. Subscribe and learn more.